came a long way. That's what the song say. And I could do all things. I could do all things. Yeah, I could do all things. Yeah, yeah, we came a long way. Hey, what's up? What's going on? And welcome to the Be Real Podcast, where we keep it real on social issues, history, news, faith, and everything in between. It's your one-stop podcast with thought-provoking talk and real content. Now, it's time to get real with your host, Brandon Mosley. You already know what it is. Swag it out one time for your guy. I can do walking, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what the songs say. I can do all things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, what's going on? You can do all things. Hey, good to uh, be here once again in this beautiful neighborhood. Be Real Podcast. Thank you, thank you for joining me once again. I hope you enjoyed the last episode. I told you we're going to mix it up with some faith. We did the movie stuff. We did social justice. We're trying to just mix it up a little bit. Um, this is the ninth episode, so we're getting close to the season finale, which is episode 12, and moving into season two and, and changing it up a little bit and starting to focus possibly on politics and some other things. So look out for that. But with that being said... If you're listening to this podcast and you're enjoying it, make sure you're sharing it with your friends, families, associates, and make sure you add the uh, face, Facebook and uh, Instagram, Be Real Podcast, and also make sure you hit me with the five-star. I need the five-star treatment, and make sure you write a review. Feel free to email me or even send a voicemail. I'd love to hear from some of my listeners to hear what you guys are thinking, and also maybe some suggestions and some things I should talk about. So with that being said, we have a jam-packed show, y'all. So the show's title is just Labor Day, but here's the deal. Labor Day, Civil Rights, Unionism. So we're going to be looking into a few things concerning Labor Day. But before I get into all that, um, happy Labor Day if you're listening on Labor Day, or even right after Labor Day, or maybe years from now you might listen to this on Labor Day. Uh, Labor Day, but yeah, let, let me tell you my little Labor Day story I have. So, some years back, um, I moved to a new apartment in Bellflower. I used to live in Long Beach, not too far um, from the beach. Um, and I, I loved Long Beach, but it was a studio apartment, so it wasn't that big, but you know, it got me through college. I got I got a job after college, started making a little bit of money, so I was like, let me get a a full-on apartment. I love this little apartment, man. I had a one-bedroom, had the living room, had the kitchen with the dining area, and it was just me by myself. I had two parking spots. It was gated, so I, I really felt like I was doing it. You couldn't tell me nothing, all right? So Labor Day comes around, and um, I asked my girlfriend to, to come hang out with me on Labor Day, Cause she was uh, actually staying in San Diego at the time, and my girlfriend happens to be my wife today. So she came over, and I was like, "You know what I want to do? I want to make some ribs." And here's the deal: I didn't have a barbecue pit yet, so I was like, "I'm gonna make them in the oven. I'm gonna do that." Um, so it was my first real time, just trying to get a slab of ribs and do it. And I got some uh, baby back ribs. And, you know, did my thing. And I, I really felt like I was coming into my own as a man. You know, you got to 
get the grill going. But I, the only thing is I didn't have a grill, so I had to get the uh, oven going. Um, so that's the only thing I was missing. But it came out pretty good. I felt like real good about myself. I enjoyed, That was like my favorite Labor Day of all time. Um, and the main reason was because I was able to make my own little ribs, you know what I mean, by myself. Um, enjoyed the day and had a whole slab of ribs set up, watch TV, watch the movie. And I think we might actually even went to the movies afterwards, but it was just a good time. Can you just imagine it was just me and my girlfriend with a slab of like, I think we might have even been two slabs. I don't know. I might have just went way out. And I'm just thinking like, I'm going to eat this for like the whole week. Yeah, that's that's that. Living on your own single, you know, not married yet life right there. Just you you make those ribs to make sure you're going to eat that the whole week. It's like that's going to have to happen. Um, I used to also make like lasagna. I don't know why I'm going into this tangent about this, like a big pot, a big thing of lasagna, like the frozen stouffer ones and eat that for like three days straight. It was it was hard out there, y'all. And eating cereal and stuff like that. And I, I mean, or, or usually just would go out to Wingstop or something like that. Man, it's tough out here. But so this episode is going to consist of like what Labor Day is, um, the history of civil rights and unions, and just the current struggle today in terms of uh, the labor movement, things of that nature. So get ready for that, y'all. So what is Labor Day in the first place, right? So most people think like Labor Day is just to signal like the end of summer. And trust me, as a kid, Labor Day came around. It was like my second favorite holiday in the summer. But also that like we about to go back to school next week, bro. It's about to get real. But outside of that, it's much more. It's literally signifying the struggle of the labor movement, the fight, right? And that labor movement fight was all about, really, unions. So, in essence, Labor Day is really about the fight of unions, what they've done for America. So, with that being said, what have they even fought for? Why were they fighting? So, I want to let you take a listen real quick of an excerpt from The Jungle, Upton Sinclair. But more importantly, he came out of the plant radicalized by what happened to the workers, how they got chewed up the same way the food did. Disguised as a worker, Sinclair plunged into a modern hell where human life was indescribably cheap. Men in the pickle rooms had their fingers eaten by acid. Those who worked in the cooking rooms lived in danger of falling into open vats of boiling meat and being cooked alive. Wow, right? That was crazy. So Upton Sinclair, when you think about the jungle, we're taught in like U.S. history and stuff like that back in the day that, or even now, that was really all about food and meat packing issues, right? And the FDA needed to be created and things of that nature. But when he started this book and when he was sent out from his, to his, from his newspaper to start this research, it was about the workers' lives. And what was going on in the factories and in those packing plants in terms of the employees. And what was happening was at the turn at, at the really at the end of the Civil War, America started going through its second industrial revolution. And this is when 
labor was super important. And many people say this is literally when there was a distinction between two classes. And the classes were simple, rich, and guess what? Poor. And that's this is, you know, turn of the century we see in the Rockefellers, J.P. Morgans, the Vanderbilts of America pretty much owning America and most of its wealth. Um, and we have a surge of Eastern Europeans coming in. And, of course, we got xenophobia, anti-immigration, which we kind of talked about in one of the episodes before happening. And you got all these Eastern Europeans coming in hoping for a change. And when I say Eastern European, that means they're most likely darker skin. They're a little bit different. Um, this is a second portion of portion of really major European migration. So these people weren't the ones who were going out west that was receiving land and things of that nature. These are people who are staying back east and taking on some of the worst jobs in these plants. And alongside with some with African Americans fighting for these jobs and, and worse jobs normally as well, were taking on dangerous jobs where they're dying, hurting themselves, um, working outrageous hours, you know, 12, 13 hour days. So this is stuff we're seeing. And these factories just simply was taking advantage of them many ways, like making them vote a certain way if they could vote. And if they didn't vote that way, they'd lose their job or threaten to be sent back to their home country. Um, so we got all this stuff happening. So this is when unions like really started to push for workers rights so what we see like the first true labor day is tuesday september 5th the first tuesday of september actually in 1882 and here's the deal Ten thousand workers took unpaid time off to march from city hall to union square in new york city so the very first labor day wasn't really a holiday it was a protest right so this is what we're seeing then after that, you know, we see years later, not too much later, that Mr. Cleveland, our president, Grover Cleveland, in 1894, June 28th, he made this holiday, you know, an actual federal holiday by law. But the real question is, why did he do it? So this is why President Cleveland even did this. It was a concession and the concession came because of May 11th of the same year, Pullman strike happened in Chicago. So it was happening because of wage cuts. Companies used to like cut wages out of nowhere without any warning and say, hey, we're going to pay you less right now. It is what it is. And they decided with their union reps also being fired to say, hey, we're going to we, we have to strike. And by June 26, Eugene Debs decided to say, you know what, let's do a full boycott and let's cripple this railroad road. So with them literally boycotting that crippled transportation, crippled um, sending, you know, freight trains over to the West, and it, it crippled all those things. Right. And with that being said, the president decided to send in federal troops. And when he did that, it created a riot and dozens or I'm sorry, over a dozen um, employees or workers were killed. So after all that. This is when he decided to say, hey, two days later, hey, how about this little holiday we want to give you a concession, you know, right? So not giving them what they really wanted, trying to give them something to, to pacify them or, or make them, you know, quiet down. So with that being said, let's let's take a listen to one of the most famous rights of all time in terms of uh, the labor movement. 
By the 1880s, the United States was going through major political, social, and economic changes. Industry was growing in scale, and innovations in manufacturing were leading to the production of more goods and services. Factories needed workers, and more and more workers crowded in the cities, causing conflicts between businesses and workers within these industrial centers. One of these cities was Chicago, home to McCormick Harvester Works. For years, the McCormick family had been locked in a battle with the heavily Irish faction of the factory's workers who were in a union and would often strike over wage cuts. Despite efforts to break union activity at the plant, the McCormicks only succeeded in driving many of the factory's disaffected workers to join outside labor unions. On May 1, 1886, Chicago unions were among those participating in a general strike to limit the workday to eight hours in an age where working 10 or more hours a day was commonplace. Two days later, violence erupted between union and non-union workers at the McCormick factory after union workers discovered those who crossed the picket line had been given the eight-hour workday. During the skirmish, the police intervened, leaving two workers dead and others wounded. On May 4th, a mass meeting was scheduled in Chicago's Haymarket Square, a bustling commercial area, to protest the police brutality and the shootings that occurred outside the McCormick factory. Labor activists August Spees and Samuel Fielden, along with the political journalist Albert Parsons, were among those who gave speeches. At around 10.30 that evening, the police demanded that the meeting disperse. In the moments that followed, an unknown person threw a dynamite bomb into the crowd. Many were injured and a policeman was killed. The police retaliated. Shots were fired. Protesters were struck with clubs. By the time the crowd had dispersed minutes later, 73 policemen had been wounded. Six of them died from injuries. Four civilians were killed and at least 12 others were wounded. Although the meeting had been peaceful until the explosion, the public blamed the riot on the organized labor movement and on anarchists and socialists. Because both of these groups were largely made up of immigrants, it added to a fear that foreign ideas threatened American values. After an intensive investigation, eight men were arrested, including Spees, Fielden, and Parsons, and tried for inciting the Haymarket riot. After a spectacular trial, where it was revealed that some of the men indicted did not even attend the meeting, and it could not be proven which, if any of the men had built or set off the bomb, all eight were found guilty and convicted. Four were executed. So the organizers pretty much were arrested and killed for the most part. One of them committed suicide, three were killed, and four others' um, sentences were commuted because of civil unrest and people fighting for them. So understand this, they're, they're out there fighting against the fact of wages and police brutality. It's pretty similar to what we see are happening today. So it's kind of scary to think about, right? So think about unions. And a lot of times we're, we're, what we think when we think of unions, we, we don't realize actually what unions have done for America. And before we get to the civil rights part of this, I want us to take a break and look at this stuff. Um, first and foremost, we have the weekends because of 
guess what? Unions. Because of them being willing to picket, being willing to strike, being a part of uh, dangerous uh, protesting where it turned into riots because of the police aggressive nature at that time and put their life on the line. We have the weekend, right? And, and we think that's a that's no big deal. But before, they worked seven days a week, 12-hour days. That was fairly standard. And because of them, now we have an eight-hour workday and the Fair Labor Standards Act to back us up, right? Better wages and minimum wage. So in the 1940s and 1950s, income inequality in the U.S., which literally means that there's the pie is being shared by more people, meaning like, you know, the one percent that that one percent's not controlling as much of the pie. Right. That there is a strong middle class. So during the 1940s and 1950s, the inequality in the U.S. was at its lowest point. And guess what? The unions was at its strongest point. But uh, in the last 35 years, there's been a decline in unions, but also a heavy decline um, in the middle class share of the national national income so that inequality has actually gotten worse in the last 35 years. Um, also, the end of child labor, right? Kids as young as five used to work, literally work in factories um, for a fraction of the price of their parents. Healthcare through collective bargaining, um, healthcare was pushed in the 1940s and it were expanded to uh, to cover more people and have jobs actually offer that right. Family medical leave that 12 weeks that you receive that will pro- that your job is going to be protected. Guess what? Unions. Right. Um, so all this while doing the good, I would say good for the American worker. They also created a enemy on the right and the enemy on the right was, you know, the GOP. And that really comes from back during the Great Depression when unions decide to ride with FDR. Guess what? A Democrat and kept riding with Democrats. So Republicans and the GOP since then um, started to create a onslaught of negative um, ideas, right? Or negative commentary concerning unions. And one of them would be claiming that they're like a monopoly. Unions were created to fight monopolies pretty much, fight the mistreatment. But now for the last, you know, 40, 50 years been called monopolies. They also say they stagnate the economy, right? They prevent growth and that they have corruption, right? So all this is happening. Then one of the biggest union busters of all time was President Reagan. President Reagan was actually the president of his union while he was an actor. And he did amazing work for them, no doubt. Like, he got a lot done as the president of um, his union. Some say more than he did for America. But that's another comment, another story, another debate. But when he became president, he fired 11,300 air controllers because they were, were, of course, a part of the union. They were striking, Right. And that union, funny enough, actually was one of the only few unions that actually endorsed him in the 1980 election. And he turns around in 1981, fires 11,300 of their union members. Right. 
And here's the crazy thing. By the end of the 1980s, less than 17% of the American workers were organized, were part of an organized union, right? Compared to 34% in the late 1950s. So we see from like the beginning of the 80s, by the end, well over 5 million people um, drop out or, or lose their job or are no longer a part of the union, right? And so the 80s is pretty much known as the decade that kind of try to destroy or destroy um, a lot what the unions have accomplished. So I can't give you all the history of labor movement. That's not this episode, but I think now you know enough to kind of look in the civil rights side. So looking at the civil rights side, um, after the Civil War, of course, you see unions really starting to gear up. And you also see black workers going to work, leaving the South, going to the North, right? And they wanted to join unions, but a lot of the unions were segregated or would not allow blacks at all a part of their uh, union. But by 1850, you have a new union formed by the name of American League of Colored Laborers. And was formed in New York City under the the uh, leadership of Samuel Ward, uh, with the help of Frederick Douglass as being his VP, and Henry Bibb, his secretary. And all three of these guys were abolitionists. So that's a form, of course, of at the time civil rights, right? So these guys create this this union um, for all black laborers, right? By 1877, black workers. Um, took part actually to with the Great Railroad Strike. And in 1894, they tried to be a part of the uh, Pullman Strike that we talked about earlier in this episode. Uh, Eugene Debs tried to convince the white employees uh, and union members to allow them to be a part of it. They denied them. Um, and it probably would have made their, their strike a little stronger if they would have allowed them. Um, moving forward, by 1905, we have a, a union... Um, the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, formed, and their first bylaw was to not allow the ex- exclusion of women or people of color. And, and, the, and the reason why is because one of their founding members was Lucy Parsons, a biracial woman, a, a black woman. Her, her mom was raped by the, the uh, slave owner, and, and she was a product of that. She was one of the founding members. And ironically, her husband, Albert Parsons, is one of the people that were killed um, and executed after the Haymarket riot. Um, she married a, a Southern white white man who ha- happened to be really with the cause. Um, so with that being said, by 1905, you have a union that is set up for not only just blacks, but for women and for all people to join to, to ensure that there is no um, segregation. And the crazy thing about Lucy is that the Chicago PD says this about her at one point, says she's more dangerous than a thousand rioters. So that lets you know all you need to know about her. Um, but I'll say, look her up. She, she has an amazing story and she was really, um, she was really with it, 100%, right? Um, that powerful of a woman that in 1905, right? Um, and to think about the power of women during this movement as well. 
So also what we see is by 1930, that 30s, that most large unions started to accept African-Americans completely. And you will see African-Americans starting to take a place at the table. And one of those guys who, who started to take a place at the table was A. Philip uh, Randolph. So A. Philip Randolph um, started to um, push and pursue a union by the name of Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And he wanted to be recognized by the Pullman Company, and it took him 12 years to get that hap- get that to happen. He also became um, one of the, to, he also was able to sit on national boards for, for labor unions and things of that nature. But what is really important to know is in 1941, Randolph joined forces with uh, Bayard Rustin, which, so if you don't know, don't know Mr. Rustin, he, he was like the right-hand man of Martin Luther King, Dr. King. Um, he was an openly gay black man, and that's part of the reason why most people may not um, know who he is or heard of him, because history books kind of pushed him aside, and he kind of stayed in the background because of that. But anyways, um, him and Rustin decided to... Uh, start a or to form and create a a march on washington they threatened to have a hundred thousand people march on washington in 1941 if fdr didn't do anything about the segregation and the discrimination in the defense industry since we're gearing up for world war ii at the time and these are some amazing jobs and opportunities but african-americans weren't able to um, reap the benefits so because of that, they pushed him to, to desegregate those things and stop that discrimination and also to sign later down the road the Fair Employment Act. So this is what they did, right? This amazing. We're going to get back to that in a second. But look at all this happening during the civil rights in the 1950s. We see the union actually step up. So where the union step, step up at is, here's the deal, the Montgomery bus boycott, which is pretty much the start of that big push in civil rights, you know, months months after uh, Emmett Till's death in August of 1955, by December 1955, you have the Montgomery bus boycott. You guys should know that history, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But Edie Nixon was a leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, but he also was the initial organizer for the Montgomery bus boycott. So he's a union leader, one of the right-hand men man of R- Randolph, and he's initiating and organizing the Montgomery bus boycott. So with all that being said, th- that boycott also needed money. Guess where the money came from? United Auto Workers. They sent money to support the boycott um, and also help bail people out during protests and things of that nature during that time. And with all that's happening, we start seeing the voter rights being the push by 1960, right? So in about 1960, outside of Tennessee, you have almost 1,400 black people registered to vote in Fayette County in Tennessee. And with that happening, there's going to be consequences. And what happened was many people were evicted. Black people were evicted out of their homes and apartments owned by uh, white people. And they were forced to be homeless. So a farmer, uh, a black farmer, uh, donated his land or allowed these people to create a tent city. And that tent city was named Freedom Village. So what Teamsters started to do was they started providing money and supplies, not only to civil rights workers, but also to up to 700 families living in Freedom Village. 
So they started to help feed these people to help give um, supplies to the movement. This is in 1960. This is what the Teamsters were doing, the union pretty much, right? And during all this time, of course, we still are fighting for um, the seat at the table and the seat at the lunch counter starting at Woolsworth. So we see that in the South um, with SNCC and things of that nature pushing for integration. And what does the union do in New York, Central Labor Council, Council, while down South they're doing sit-ins? They started to organize picketers of the Woolworth stores and boycotting them as well. And to a point that the International Ladies, once again, Ladies uh, Garment Workers Union, contribute 800 picketers per day. Each day, 800 women outside picketing that store. So they're feeling the heat not only down south, but also in New York due to the, guess what? The unions. So we're seeing the big connection with the unions and the civil rights movement and African-Americans realizing that police brutality also were happening to union employees, happening to African-Americans, happening to anyone asking for equality. Right. So what the UAW also does is during this whole time. And during this whole time, they're giving money to the Southern Christian Leadership Council and Dr. King. And in 1963, they gave $100,000 alone and allowed Dr. King to work in their UAW headquarters. So all this is happening. And they're helping him um, bring in people to, to march. And one of those things were a couple months before the March on Washington in Detroit, 150,000 people. So they bust people in. Right. And they did the same thing with the, the March on Washington, which was in 1963. But the, the real march wasn't just for civil rights. The march was actually for jobs and freedom. So you have six major um, groups creating this march. And this is a brainchild of Randolph and Rustin, because this is something they was hatching up, you know, 20 years prior. So what we see is these six groups that are sponsoring this march one of them happened to be the Brotherhood of, of Sleeping Car Porters. So you got all this happening. They're bringing money in. On top of that, Walter Reuter, the only person to speak that was not black, a white man, was the president of the UAW. And he also marched, Walter Reuter marched with, with Dr. King in Selma and Birmingham, right? Bailing out King and a lot of the protesters many times. So when I say the union was really hand to hand with the civil rights movement and funding the civil rights movement, it's a fact, right? It's, it, this is what it was. So much so, here's a good one for me since I'm a teacher. American Federation of Teachers gave $40,000 worth of station wagons for voting registration and also gave money for the, for the march and also helped push Brown versus Board Education as well. So this is all happening. Then at the same time, you got George. I'm giving you guys so much information for a reason to show you the connection between labor and African-Americans, the labor movement and the civil rights movement. Right. George Meany paid one hundred sixty thousand dollars, a president, union president to bail out over two thousand protesters. Right. So you got all this happening and it's happening with the help of the unions, recognizing that 
like Dr. King says, there's three major evils in the world. One being, of course, war, right? Of course, racism. But the third one, he says, poverty, right? And he understood, especially since he went to Chicago uh, a year before his before his assassination, he was up north because he was trying to figure out this labor issue. He's trying to figure out how can he be a part of this poverty issue, right? And he understood that jobs and having people become being a part of unions were going to create real change. So with that being said, I want to let, let you listen to an excerpt of Dr. King, his last speech. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. what will happen now we've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop I don't mind like anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So Dr. King's last speech was given in the Mason Temple uh, Church and God in Christ headquarters. And he's in Memphis giving this amazing speech and wasn't even supposed to give the speech, right? If you know the history, he was actually in the hotel room in his uh, pajamas already going to bed. And they called him and said, they, you know, Jesse Jackson called him and said, Doc, they want you. They don't want me. Um, so he, he went up there and gave his speech. And, and, and in the context, a lot of times we're thinking that he's just talking about civil rights in that speech. That whole speech was about strikers and about unions and about workers and their rights and their First Amendment rights and, 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 and pushing for that. So he's looking for 
change, not just for civil rights in this part of his life. And I'm not going to go too deep in this part because this is a totally episode by itself. This part of his life, his main focus was really dealing with poverty. Right. So that's what he was focusing on. And he thought that was a great um, connector or great unifier that poverty, getting people of different races to realize like we all in this, we're all in this together. Um, and we, we, we all deserve a piece of the pie. So he's out there because sanitation workers, and this is the second time there. First time's a different story. That's a different part of history. Um, he went out there by himself and it didn't go too well. So he came back second time with his whole team and he's out there because these guys, these, these employees, these workers are fighting for wages, safety, and they wanted their union to just be recognized. And two men were actually crushed to death in the garbage truck. So he's out there fighting for them. And, and in that context, you can kind of really see his mind and where he's at in terms of unions. So this is what we see throughout the history of civil rights, that without the unions, the civil rights movement wouldn't have been as successful. Bottom line. So in, to, in terms of today, like, where are the, the, the unions and civil rights today, right? What's going on? And a lot of times people ask, like, where are the, all the manufacturing jobs going? Where are they going in terms of the tire manufacturing and the auto manufacturing and all these things? And they used to be in the Northeast, like in Cleveland, D- Detroit, different parts of Michigan. So where are they now, right? And the answer is they're down south. They're still in America, right? So a lot of them are still in America and they're down south because down south, they're friendly to anti-union policies. And on top of that, there's a lot of cheap, guess what? Black labor. Hmm, that sounds familiar, right? And in Canton, Mississippi, one example, Nissan opened up a factory like 17, 18 years ago and they promised the world to that area, of course. And what they do is they have an 80% of their workforce happens to be African-American. And a lot of that workforce is hired through temp agency agencies, I'm sorry, which means they're being paid less and receiving a lot less benefits. And the pay for those people are being paid in terms with the temporary employees is $12 and 75 cents an hour where those type of jobs in the fifties and forties and fifties and early sixties were the lifeblood and like of the middle class. It changed your whole life. If you got a job right out there, even with the tire factories that used to be in LA, you got a job at a good year. You're set. You're going to buy a house and life's going to be good for you. You're going to have a pension. Um, and it's going, it's going to be good. Right? So this place, you know, the, the Nissan factory, the employees wanted to, to unionize with the UAW. You, you remember the UAW that helped the civil rights movement? And what happens is you have Bernie Sanders coming, you have um, BLM helping, you have all these people coming to help, right? Even Danny Glover. Danny Glover, right? He, he even came. So you got all this happening, and guess who helps uh, to prevent the, lo- the, the uh, unions? Not only lobbies, but the Koch brothers. If you don't know the Koch brothers, go look them up. K-O-C-H. One of them passed away, but big money. Giving money to help negative ads against UAW. 
And not only that, Nissan brought in um, people to to speak to the employees and just see where their heads were and to kind of tell them how negative unions were and kind of press them. And not only press them, threaten to close the factory if they became a part of a union, right? And after all that being said, once the vote occurred, union lost because of the fear of losing their jobs, right? Um, And the crazy thing is by... March 2019, a year and a half later, they let go 300 people anyways. And if those people were a part of a union, they would have received a severance package. They would receive guaranteed rehiring clause and other benefits that they did not receive because they wasn't a part of a union. And with that being said, there's other companies doing the same thing, right? Um, there are companies, there's another co- company in Macon, Georgia, uh, Kumo Tires, 80% of their workers wanted a union after they sent in people to speak to them one-on-one and negative ads, the union lost. So this is, this is not new. This happens all the time in the South um, with African-American workers. And the reason why they're there is because they understand that African-Americans are afraid with job security. They are afraid to lose their job. They're thinking they're going to lose their job or lose their opportunity. So they know they can pay those workers less. They know they can do that. Um, And with that being said, Nissan received $1.3 billion in in tax cuts and cash. And they promised all these jobs. And they are hiring temp employees with lower wages. So with that being said, these multinational companies are coming into America um, and building factories down south, and not only them, also American companies as well, building factories down south and taking advantage of African Americans. And the craziest thing is, all these multinational companies like Nissan and Kumo, all their places outside of America are unionized. They have unions. But when they get to America, they're pressing workers not to be part of a union. I wonder why. So the crazy thing ever is a year later, in 2020, of course, we're going through a pandemic. And in March, they forced, when I say they, Nissan forced 4,000 of their employees, majority black, of course, to work during this pandemic in the beginning stages where we didn't know anything, which we still have a lot to learn, of course. But their UK counterparts that are mostly white, that are a part of a union, didn't go to work. And who else didn't go to work? All the upper management there and all the salary employees didn't go to work. But all the people who are making $12.75 an hour who cannot, who if they do get fired, they won't even qualify for unemployment in their state. That's where we're at, right? And in terms of the civil rights movement, what's going on right now, or the modern day civil rights movement, you can say police brutality and things of that nature, the BLM movement, they were very instrumental in the fight for 15 um, and with fast food employees and the dignity to work, um, they went down to, meet to the South or they were the people who were locally there in the South and Mississippi and things of that nature were pushing and helping uh, those Nissan employees as well. So to say that that unions and civil rights uh, movement or the or any social movement in terms of African-Americans, Go hand in hand. That's a under. That's a understatement, right? This is what they are. This is what they do. Unions are considered in some places radical, but in reality, 
they've done so much. And also what's happening right now, there is dozens of unions across the nation right now coordinating to strike because of police brutality. This just came out two days ago. So this is what unions are doing right now to be a part of the change. So the labor movement and Labor Day is almost like a civil rights day. Welcome to another Be Inspired moment. And this time, once again, I'm looking at Dr. King, his very last speech that he gave about being on the mountaintop. And he says this, either we go up together or we go down together. If we want to make it to the mountaintop together as society, as a people, we have to lift each other up. We have to work with one another. We have to love one another and realize that collectively we're stronger, we're better, we're greater together. That if we have a crab in the barrel mentality, all we're going to do is push each other and pull each other down. But if we work together and view our collective goal as something that's important, I truly believe change will occur. But change only happens when we have the same goal. My final thought, I want to think about this. That today we have blacks being the last hired and the first fired is still a reality today. And with the social climate, I believe that unions are in a resurgence. They're rising once again. With looking at the middle class and what occurred in the last, you know, since the 1980s, we've seen a decrease in opportunities. We have everyone wanting the same thing, the American dream. So with 20, over 20 million people losing their jobs in April alone, and 30 to 40 million people on the edge of eviction, job insecurity, housing insecurity, food insecurity is on the rise. So with that being said, I think unions are needed for fair wages, for opportunities, workers' rights, and civil rights. And if we ever want to see that American dream come true for the vast majority, it's simple. It's time to understand that unions aren't the bad guy or they're not our enemy or the boogeyman, but they're actually important to our society, not only for job security, not just for the labor movement, but for civil rights and just simply people. So with that being said, Unions aren't going anywhere. Civil rights is not going anywhere. Yeah, I could do all things. Yeah, yeah, we came a long way. That's what the songs say. And I could do all things. I could do all things.